welcome to another episode of Adventuring Academy. I'm your humble dungeon master, Brendan Lee Mulligan. This is Dropouts Vodcast, where we talk about all things gaming related to running awesome adventures at your table. Oh, goodness me, our guest today. I am so excited to have her here. You know her as a cast member from Relics and Rarities as Beryl, the half-orc barbarian. Uh, you, uh, you know her as a cast member from Penny Arcade's Seattle by Night, Critical Role's Doom Eternal One-Shot, Geek and Sundry Starter Kit, Penny Arcade's Court of Cups, and the dungeon master for D&D Beyond Silver and Steel with pals B. Dave Walters and Jennifer Kretschmer. Please welcome to the show, Jasmine Bueller! <sighs> Woo! Jasmine. That made me sound so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's It made you sound that way because that's a factual representation of real lived life. Welcome <laughs> to the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> oh, we're delighted to have you. Uh, Jasmine, I was telling you before we got we got on the air here, but uh, uh, we're so excited to have you because you've been name dropped a bunch as not only an incredible dungeon master, but an incredible player by many of the luminary guests that we've had on the VOD so far. Uh, tell me, uh, how did you get your start in tabletop? Uh, what attracted you to the game? And what attracted you specifically to sitting at the head of the table and running adventures for other people? Yeah, um, my my start with D&D was not love at first sight. Mm. <laughs> I feel like most people's stories are usually like, I played it and I fell in love with it right away. And that was not the case for me. It was in college and uh, uh, my then boyfriend played and... Uh, it was 3.5, and I stumbled across the 3.5 Book of Vile Darkness, so I made a cancer mage uh, <gasps> who had been brought back to life by plague rats. That was her, like, kind of story. Very edgy, very edgy, very dark. And then I, I get all ready to play, and then we're sitting there to play, and the other characters are like, I, I serve the god of thunder, and I'm lawful good. And I was like, this is lame. <laughs> I did not have a good time. I was like, I don't want to play anymore. I don't like these people. This is lame, you know? And instead I played World of Warcraft and played Horde for a few years. <laughs> and then I didn't get back into it again until like five years later. And it was with Mouse Guard. And then from there, I discovered that there's a plethora of stories to tell. And you don't just have to always be the goody two shoes. Um, but it took me a while to like realize that there was other so so it was other tabletop RPGs that brought me back eventually to D and D fifth edition, which is kind of fun. Well, I love that. And by the way, we're totally well. We can if we want to talk Mouse Guard, let's talk Mouse Guard. Like we <laughs> super like Adventuring Academy. Uh, uh, we we go wherever we want to go, and especially mm -hmm. in terms of like expanding your horizons into like what other games have to offer. That is totally rad. Um, uh, talk to me a little bit about like that initial instinct you had of like, hmm, Book of Vile Darkness. Because I think that that's one of those things that, especially for people that first begin playing, there is this deep attraction to the dark side, to yeah. lower planar, yeah. your death knights, your anti-paladins, yeah. all that kind of rad uh, bad guy shit, for lack of a better word. Um, uh, what what do you think is the attraction there? And having now logged a ton of hours, both as a player and as someone who runs games, what are your like go-to tips for people that want to meddle in these forces of evil? Yeah, I think the reason that I was originally attracted to it was because it plays on why D&D &D is different than, than video games. Like they, they run hand in hand. 
you know, especially with older video games, you would see the rules on the screen, you know, when you, when you look at games like, like Baldur's Gate or even, or even Dragon Age. Um, and, but D and D really shows like why it's better or why it's different in the sense that you can, you get to control the narrative. Um, you know, with the quest, you have to choose, okay, do you, do you help this person out of their cage? Uh, do you kill them where they stand? Do you say you'll let them out of the cage for money? And D&D, there are no choice options, right? And I feel like that's why we get drawn to playing like that Book of Vile Darkness, weird, you know, creepy uh, you know, villain type of type of stuff, because because that, those are roles we very seldom get to occupy in any other capacity other than tabletop RPGs. Mm-hmm. We get to control the narrative. Um, and for me, it actually started with uh, old British literature. Like I, I always wondered, like I remember reading the first like a uh, Tolkien's translated edition of Beowulf and just having questions about Grendel and, Gre- and Grendel's mother <laughs> and being like, we heard the we heard the tale from Beowulf's end. I'm kind of curious about Grendel's, you know, sort of side of this story. What does he look like? What motivates him? Why does he eat people at the feast? I have so many questions. Did Grendel's mother deserve to be beheaded, you know? And so that was like originally my kind of entry into that that sort of dark type of thing. And to answer the second part of your question um, of like, how do you prepare, I guess, like a campaign for that or or tell interesting stories in that, I think it comes down to like, you know, showing those shades of gray. Oh, there's no right answers. Um, and when you're a hero, those those decisions you make torture you. But when you're a villain, you can feel vindicated in your decisions instead of feeling tortured by them. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. Right, because playing heroic characters, like obvi- this, I I've gone on record and said this before, but like clearly being good or being heroic, being virtuous, whatever you want to call it, is a lot harder than. Yeah engaging like the the fun of playing the villainous character is like oh i get to engage in my vices right <laughs> like i don't need to listen to jiminy cricket on my shoulder i can just do whatever my you know wicked impulse was but there's an element to that that i want think is very interesting because of the nature of tabletop role-playing games to enable like what do we mean by role-playing mm-hmm. of being someone other than yourself right and i remember you know uh, talking about uh, why people are drawn to games with sort of fantastical violence in them. And it's easy to like make a dark inference about human nature of like, well, people people are violent at heart. And I always think the answer is a little bit more like, no, like, like being confrontational has tremendous personal stakes in real life. So there's something cathartic about being able to be like, I attack the town guard when you're playing. It's just about catharsis. It's just about the yeah. escape of being kind of without consequence. And I think that there's something to that idea of like playing a like, ooh, I'm like a servant of Vecna, where you're like, yeah, in my day-to-day life, I sweat doing the right thing a lot. And then there's this little release as I am like a servant of evil in whatever this fantasy world is. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that's so funny of like going to that, that when uh, we see that too a lot in like, I remember playing, um, I used to run a live action role playing summer camp. And it's very funny because we would see a lot of times 
are like, you know, young kids that would come to camp, it would take them a couple years to want to start playing heroes or playing like townsfolk. Like the 15, 16, and 17 year olds wanted to play good but flawed people who were trying their best. The like the kids that were new to camp that were like 11 and 12 were like, make me a level 20 death knight and let me just unleash unleash on the world. There's something yeah. about coming into that fantasy world for the first time where you're like, no, 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 no. I gotta, I, I have to do what's expected of me all day, every day, IRL. Mm -hmm. Give me the skull armor, baby. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's like, like when you're, like you were saying, when you're playing a good person, like you sweat, right? Like you never know if you made the right decision. Usually there is no right decision and you have to agonize over whether, you know, whose interests you're going to protect and, and you know, it's, it's always stressful. But like, who doesn't want to be Sinestro? You yeah. know, and just be like, I did it and therefore it has to be right, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm definitely uh, a Yellow Lantern at heart. Like not, <laughs> not actually, but I, I like to play one in my tabletop RPGs. <laughs> Control people through fear, that's acceptable. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so uh, looking at your, so so how long were you, whether through Mouse Guard or through whatever other tabletop games, how long were you, as you came back to them from kind of World of Warcraft and other gaming experiences, um, how long were you like regularly at tables before you made the jump to um, uh, running games for your friends? Uh, and what was what was the sort of like mental shift like as you go from being that first person player character into now having to sort of moderate a game for a bunch of people? Yeah, uh, it, there wasn't a huge gap between when I got back into tabletop RPGs and then jumped into GMing. It was it was actually pretty fast. Um, and I think that's because of the universal truth that it's hard to find people who want to GM or DM. <laughs> it's really difficult. Um and so I feel like I, I hear this from other DMs all the time. Like, I just want to play once in a while. One day I'm going to get to play this character I made like seven years ago. I feel like once you start DMing, you become the de facto DM as well. I, um, that's so, I literally, if someone says I'm having a hard time finding a group, I immediately know that they're not a dungeon master because <laughs> no person willing to run a game has ever had a hard time finding a group. No. At least not in my experience. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Yeah. 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 Um, I think the major shift that happened mentally was realizing that uh, I had to be an arbiter of basically of, of, of disagreement, uh, which was something I didn't really think about going into it. Um, and it's something I've gotten better at, like that conflict resolution part, because trying to interpret the rules as written, I realized that as written means different things to different people. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think the biggest thing I've probably learned is how do you, when you have four or even more, uh, you know, player characters, how do you respect the agency of each of them when sometimes they try to overstep each other? Like one person is trying to save this, this small werewolf child. Another person is trying to kill that werewolf child because they're chaotic good. And it's like, okay, how do I sort of like when the, when, a, when the inevitable fight breaks out, and the, and the dice are being rolled, how do I come in and ensure that things are fair and that everyone walks away from that scenario in a way that feels like it was resolved the way they wanted it to be resolved? I love this because I think this is a huge part of 
running tables that I don't know that we've covered on the vodcast before, because I think that for a lot of people, they, they, their answer is like, I do everything in my power to avoid that circumstance ever coming up, which is not true of the games I run. Like I'm okay if PCs want to be a cross purpose you know the the thing for me, and I come from an improv background. So the thing for me that we that I would always say to like advanced people is when when you are beginning an improv, you are told not to fight in scenes. Like don't fight in scenes, right? Very quickly, you realize that the pros are fighting all the time. There's tons of scenes where they're fighting. They're often really goddamn funny. They work well. And you go, well, wait a minute. Why am I getting told over here in one oh one? to not fight when I see the pros, you know, fighting all the time. And I would say, I say often like, because, you know, it's almost in that weird, you know, wizard academy way, like you are not ready for the powerful magic of, <laughs> but what we often mean is like, we're, you know, I used to call them scaffolding rules. Mm -hmm. We're like, scaffolding is a temporary structure that goes up on the outside of the building, which is meant to come down over time, right? And your scaffolding is us telling you not to fight. That will come down eventually mm -hmm. when the interior structure underneath that is better. And I think the interior structure is characters can fight all the time yes. as long as players are never fighting. Yes. Like, you need what what I need when we're going into a beat of intercharacter conflict is sometimes to reestablish looking at the players at the table and go, cool, it seems like we're headed for stormy water here. Let's check back in. We all think this is cool and fun, right? No one, we all recognize that we're telling a story. We all recognize that characters win or lose and it's good either way. Like success or failure as characters does not mean success or failure as yeah. storytellers, right? Yeah. Um, when you are headed into moments of inter-character conflict, right? Mm -hmm. And this happens all the time. Like, yeah, it does. <laughs> like it happens all the time. Even people that think they don't do it. I often, I think the easiest piece of intercharacter conflict I have a lot is um, if a character is going through a moment of like intense emotion or something like that, I'll often do a deception versus insight for just their friends to see if something is going on with them, right? Mm -hmm. um, which even though the stakes there aren't like, combat there is still an element of like someone trying to maintain their composure yeah. in front of other people yeah. and there there are st stakes even though those stakes are very soft and kind of emotional and personal there's still mm -hmm. stakes there right yeah um uh how do you manage uh, both the in world what are some like tools that you use to manage not only in world fairness but like your players at the table when you get to those moments of intercharacter conflict yeah. Um, well, it, it's, it's, it gets complicated. And I think I, I got more experience with it playing uh, as a character, as a player. Um, and I try, to, I try to put myself in those shoes when I DM. So like I, I, one of my characters is a warlock and um, she can read minds. Now this is great against NPCs. Uh, you know, if there's ever we need to extract information or if I want to know what one of the bosses we're fighting is going to do next. I can basically, you know, try to delve into their mind and, and figure that out. Um, but there was a situation where one of the players was clearly hiding something from the rest of the players. And I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll read this person's mind. 
I immediately could tell from the look on their face, because we're all really good friends in this game, that that was not a good thing to do. So I ended up kind of rolling that back and being like, and, and really trying to justify it. I was like, well, I feel like my character would 100% do this thing. Mm-hmm. But then I have to deal with the fallout of that, which is like, well, this person might not be happy. Would my character even stay with this party? How do I, how do I resolve this? So sometimes when my players do that at the table and they don't think of how the, how the other players are going to react, I try to, I try to, I try to like basically call a, a halt to the game, but not to the play altogether and say, okay, so if you do this from my understanding, you know, our barbarian friend here is not going to be very happy. There might be a physical scuffle. Your character could die because I don't think you can go toe to toe with this barbarian. And PVP and D and D fifth edition is not balanced. Yeah. Are you? Do you still want to go through with it? And to my surprise, the hills that some characters have been willing to die on has been pretty crazy, and it's always led to like a really great narrative outcome where someone's like, "Yes, if my character dies doing this, that's fine, but that's what my character would do." And other times they're like, "No, I I don't want that to happen." And it's like, okay, so what would your character leave the party? Would you come back as a new character? Like, how, what does this look like? And I try to figure out what each player, what their ideal outcome is versus the outcome that is more reasonable to assume is going to happen and try to meet somewhere in the middle. I think that's really great. And I also love setting, setting these expectations, I think, are really important because occasionally you do need to ch- – here's, here's the thing, right? The the reality of whatever game you're playing is only as real as the mood at the table, yeah. right? Like we we have all been in games that I would say have a spectrum of how concrete the reality gets, yeah. right? Like, for example, when the battle music is playing and you're fighting the main villain, mm-hmm. we know that every single spell slot and hit point counts and that there will be very little leniency in terms of rules. Mm-hmm. For Like one thing I don't really do when I'm DMing is if people spend a spell on a bit, I don't make them lose the spell slot. Like generally mm-hmm. speaking, if we're somewhere and someone wants to like make a minor, it's like we're at a tavern. Someone's like, I make a minor illusion of a banjo and start strumming it. I'm not going to be like, cool, mark that spell slot down, mark it down because we have <laughs> combat later. And I, because all that's going to serve to do is make that person like less creative and having less mm-hmm. of a fun time. So, which is to say that even in a campaign that is being very diligent about tracking its tone and it's like it's interactions with reality. Mm-hmm. I think we all know that the slider goes up and down the scale a little bit from gritty reality to Looney Tunes. Yeah. And even if it, even if it's always stays between an eight and a 10, mm-hmm. it, it's still, it's still, you know, like it, it's, it's, it wiggles a little bit. There's some wiggle room. So, I think what you're saying is a great thing where someone might, you know, pop off and be like, I'm going to do this as a funny bit because maybe we're in bit mode, right? Yeah. Of yeah. Like, you know, it's like, I'm going to pants the king. <laughs> yeah, I'll pull his pants down. No, I really, I'm going to roll to pull his pants down. Nat 20. <laughs> and then you have to go like, ha, ha, ha. Okay, you're all going to get killed by the palace guard. Like you have to, you come in and go like, yeah, we, we, we it started as a bit. It got a little bit out of hand. Let me just clarify. Mm-hmm. Are we leaving Bitland to real stuff that's happening in the campaign mm-hmm. now, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's so fu- So within your that moment where you halt 
and explain reality to the players. Like that, I, I think that as a dungeon master, you, if you can sense a departure that has to do with what you are intuiting is a player gravely miscalculating consequences. I think that every DM has carte blanche to stop and out of character address the player and go, hey friend, let me tell you, the anvil is above your head right now. Like yeah. you are yeah. allowed to do that. Well, I think uh, it's because different players take, uh, I think sometimes we misjudge what other players, like how seriously they might take something. Yeah. You know, I think mm -hmm. for us, it's like, oh yeah, we, we found this goblin, you know, and we decided to bring it with us as our pet. And one of the, one of the other characters keeps trying to kill it when we're sleeping, like as a joke. But now after seven weeks, the goblin has grown on me and they're still trying to kill it. And now they may succeed. Yeah. And, and and it becomes this thing where it's like, oh, for this player, it's just a funny ha-ha they're doing, that they always kill goblins on sight. That's their character flaw. But over, And maybe that was also the case for the other players, but now seven weeks in, no. I, d I don't agree anymore. Like, I feel like this this like little NPC or this little person we've brought along has become a part of the party, and you still keep trying to kill them. And it's about establishing, like, okay, is this equally important to everyone? And a lot of the times, one of the other players is like, oh, I thought, like, exactly what you said. Like, I just thought it was a joke. You know, if never mind. I, can we just roll it back? And I, I don't do that because I don't want to ruin everybody else's fun. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And especially with, like, that example that you're providing, the, the player who's, like, always kills goblins as a joke. First <laughs> of all, what a ghoulish character they are playing. <laughs> Good God. Well, that's the thing is, is I don't think you're allowed to have your cake and eat it too. If you have a character that to your description is a genocidal maniac and other characters step in to stop them, perhaps by killing that character themselves, I think that person has a very poor standing to be like, what the hell? That's crossing a line and being like, yeah. well, wait, why are these characters just a joke? But your character has some special sanctity that we're like yeah. like either death matters or it doesn't and we yeah. kind of have to have that you know what i mean like I, I think that that is where where you can definitely hold someone to account and you'd be like cool if you want to manage the tone of the campaign let's manage the tone of the campaign fairly and across the board yeah uh, uh i think that that is a very uh, a, that's an important thing for people to like focus on because as much as people want to be like glib and kind of like whatever for the lulls I, it's a very rare D, D player that is able to stay for the lulls when it comes to their character yeah and uh and so i think you can hold people to the standard that they want applied to their own pc exactly. um um that is i love it um so in terms of like being extra fair when it comes to that what are some of, when it comes to like the logistics of moments where you're and i think that happens too a lot of the time even when players whether they're interacting with each other whether they're interacting in combat or with an npc like fairness there is an element of fairness which is honestly a feeling which is like do people feel that this has been done fairly do do they all sign off on the stakes of this in the moment like mm -hmm. when you are trying to adjudicate fairness as a dungeon master when you're looking at it or in any game um, and you're looking at a situation, what are some of the tools that you go to to resolve a dispute, potentially 
as that like you know that figure of like impartiality or uh, as a figure of like a referee like mechanically what are some of the go-tos that you use to like try to keep everybody satisfied with a a moment of fairness yeah um well i i try to kind of let everybody know what the results are going to be before they're rolled and mm -hmm. i make sure that everyone verbally agrees to it so if someone says well i'm going to try to steal this this loot that we got out of out of you know they're i'm going to try to steal this player's portion of the loot that they got because that's just what my character does yeah. and i'll i'll say okay so you're going to roll you know let's say uh oh we'll do a perception check you're going to roll your dexterity if you succeed then you'll be able to take the gold however next time you know you better keep you better keep an eye on it next time you pull your wallet out or anything like that happens there is a chance they can reroll that perception check and notice that your portion of gold is bigger than theirs is or something like that. But if they catch you, if they pass the perception check, they see your hand come up and they notice it, then at that juncture, they get to roll what they want to do. They get initiative first. You'll be able to react, but whatever. And I make sure that everyone's like, okay, no, that's fair. And if they're like, well, no, 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 no. Yeah. Then we sit there and we kind of address it because what I have found happens is everyone agrees until they roll and then suddenly it's not fair anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear that. I hear that. <laughs> they'll roll like an eight and they'll be like, well, wait, 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 wait. I'm really good at picking pocket. It's like, well, you should have made that that argument before the dice fell, not after. <laughs> yeah, and I think too that you're you're very much allowed to. I think that for me, one of the things that becomes clear as a breaking point with another player is when we have left the realm of resolving a dispute between characters to them being like, as soon basically if a person has made it clear that their joy in the game comes from one upping other players at the table, yeah. I think we've found something that makes us incompatible as players. Yeah. Like I don't think I've had those moments where it's like, you know, I've seen someone be like, hey, like, oh, I'm gonna try to like steal from this character, not because it's what my thief would earnestly do, but because of like, I, I, there used to be this phenomenon that I would talk about a lot of times. It, it happens um, in LARPing all the time where a character will be like, well, well, we're in a haunted village, so I'm gonna leave. My character runs away from here. And you go like, you go like, yeah, but your character's backstory is that you've lived in this haunted village every day for 40 years. Why would you run today? And I think the same thing is true of players who often play like, I'm gonna steal from my party members. And it's like, you've been adventuring with this crew for five years and you pick today to steal. I don't buy it. This is yeah. you as a player yeah. <laughs> wanting to fuck with Josh. You can go fuck with Josh on your own time, man. We're here to have a good time in this collaborative <laughs> storytelling game. Exactly. And I think you, I think you actually are allowed as a dungeon master. And so, you know, we get a lot of questions in the Discord of like, what do we do with problem players? And it's very sad, but like problem characters, there's a lot of ways to handle. Problem yeah. players, I this you kind of have to at a certain point go. This is not a vibe. You, we we don't we we're not trying to do the same thing here. Yeah. No shade to you and what you want to do, but if we're trying to all be groovy and tell a story together, and you're constantly trying to kind of like dunk on your fellow players, that may be incompatible. Yeah, um, yeah. I always I remember telling like one of my players, and I always go back to this and explaining to them because they were like, oh well, you know. 
I just felt like it was a cool thing to do. And I, I said point blank, I was like, you are not the hero of the story. Yeah. Absolutely. You are one of the characters of the story, but you are not the hero. The, mm -hmm. the story does not begin and end with you. So you need to learn to spread some of that glory around. You're not the Tony Stark of this Avengers team. You need to have several seats and realize yeah. you are a side character and, and everybody is, and that's what makes it great. This is the B team. This is the defenders, except hopefully better than the Netflix show. But you know, anyways. Um. <laughs> I mean, well, truly, I think that there is a an element of like, how do you put it? There's an element to this of having D&D is an ensemble thing. And I think an issue too with all of that is like, so your friend goes like, I thought it would be a cool thing to do. That's fine. But in any given moment, there's a million cool things to do. Why was your cool thing at someone else's expense? You could have right. thought of a hundred different cool things to do. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is, is, you know, it's the oldest saw in the book, but that classic refrain from problem players of like, but it's what my character would do. Uh. <laughs> Well, yeah, right. Like, well, first of all, who made you make this character? You did. And second of all, the things that are possible within the scope of a given character, like imagine Harrison Ford being on the set of A New Hope and Luke and Obi-Wan come along and try to charter the Millennium Falcon. And he just is like, fuck you guys and gets up and leaves and is like, that's what my character would do. No way, no way would this cynical space smuggler take this gig from these like naive, you know, goofy like, people walking out of the desert, farm boy and some old hermit. I'm gonna go find a better, it's like, it's like your vision of a character still has to account for the broad spectrum of possibilities. Like, there, like I don't believe in this narrow definition of what a character would do. A character yeah. could do any number of things and still remain mm -hmm. in character. Yeah, I think that's also what makes NPCs very nuanced and awesome. You know, a lot of my players love my NPCs, and I think it's because maybe I have a really gruff, really stern NPC, and maybe normally this person does not help people cross the river with his boat. Mm -hmm. But... I find a reason for them to sometimes engage with the players, even if like a successful persuasion role wasn't made. And usually the reasons I find are very human, which always amuses my players. And you could use this as a character too. Like maybe your character would never go along with this adventuring party, but he has a fondness for cowboy boots and the tiefling is wearing fabulous cowboy boots. And he asks at the end of this adventure, Mr. Tiefling, will you lend me those cowboy boots? And then it gives the you know somebody the private chance to be like, you know what, sure. And it becomes this like funny thing. He comes along just for the cowboy boots. And then there's <laughs> always the opportunity for growth because characters change. And maybe over time he develops a fondness. A true fondness. You have that tearful moment where they're holding <laughs> each other tenderly and going, this started about your boots, but it's become <laughs> about your heart. And then there's, and then you have real love and that's beautiful. And that's the growth we want to see. Mm -hmm. You um, can keep the cowboy boots. No, I want you to have them. <laughs> they look better on you. I don't even know if they would fit me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. Uh, that's the love story we want to see. Um, uh, yeah, I think that that's really, really special. And again, I think that there is that element too. I think one of the most spiteful things I ever did as a DM this was way before I, I like had the hours logged under my belt to find a more mature way of handling this. I think it was like 16 or something like that. And there was an element of what was going on where I had a play, I was playing with a group of people at my summer camp that were not like regular players. And someone was playing a kind of like edgelord character that wanted, was like, 
I'm not going to work with these bozos. If you don't, if you guys aren't going to worship my dark God, then fuck, fuck all of you. I'm going back into town. And I just like gave that person their wish. I was like, cool, you head back into town. And there was no, I was like, and we would just cut back. So it would be like 45 minutes of the other characters going on the epic quest we'd prepared. And then I was like, cool, we cut back to Dan's motel. How is Zargraz, the priest of darkness doing in his motel room? Yeah, you see, there's one of those little, you know, like solitaire, like whatever games, like the, you know, the Cracker Barrel pins in the board game. Yeah, yeah give me a roll. Hey, you win. All right, cutting back to the ninth circle. You know, like, um, it, that was spiteful, and I don't recommend doing that in the future. But there is that element of like, if you find yourself playing your character or as a DM playing your NPCs in a way that constantly seems to be throwing up obstacles you are probably the lion's share responsible for coming up with ways around those obstacles. Like you want to play the cynical character with the cigarette perpetually hanging off their lip who like doesn't believe in heroics. Great. That's an awesome character. You've got to be the one to figure out why after you've told everybody to fuck off, you show up at the caravan just before it's about to leave town. There's and gotta be, like, be a reason. Gotta be a reason. And be like, and they're like, whoa, cynical hero. Why did you just show up? And like, yeah, you kids wouldn't last 10 seconds out there. I don't yeah. want your blood on my hands. And like, and then you say the thing that makes it make yeah. sense while you're coming. Help your friends out. Um, yes, yes. And I think GM, that's like a really good tip for GMing too. Cause I think, you know, I get it. We all like sometimes have players that we need to like stretch, you know, mm -hmm. they got through what we thought they were going to, was going to take them three hours and an hour and a half. And now we have to stretch. And I feel like what it turns into is like every NPC is a dick. Like, well, I just, you know, I have the key, but I'm not going to give it to the players because I need them to spend, you know, 15 minutes here while I figure out the next encounter with the kobolds. And what I've done is assume if this happens, instead of making all your NPCs just rude to the players for no reason, which is almost never fun for them, just make them horrifically incompetent. And so I'll have a guard that's like, yeah, sure, I'll get you the keys. And he looks in his pocket and he's like, oh, there's a hole in my pocket. So I think the key may have fallen out. Could you help me look for it? And then my players are like, is this guy for real? This is his one job. And I'm like, there's a hole in his pocket, Sarah. He, it's somewhere. And they ended up backtracking. That's like an actual one I used. They ended up backtracking through the whole town. And they're like, well, let's retrace your steps. Where did you go first? And then, and at the end of it, they were like, I feel like I know him now. Like I spent a whole day retracking all the way to the bakery where he gets his loaf of pumpernickel bread every day. The key was not there. All the way to the farmer's stand where he pets the sheep every single day. That was where the key was. One of the sheep <laughs> ate the key and they had to sift through dung to get it added on a good 20 minutes while I designed the next encounter and they loved it, which I think is infinitely more interesting than a guard that's just like, no, I'm not going to let you through. Why? I don't like the way you look, you know? Oh, God, that's the best piece of tactical advice I've ever heard <laughs> in Everyone's my life. incompetent all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that is the best way to put time back on the clock for yourself as a dungeon master I've ever heard. Just get it. Okay, you, wow. Okay, you guys actually got through that combat pretty quick. Um, You get to the wizard's tower. 
Um, he's just, he went through a bad breakup and he's full weeping and he can't help you because he's just in a re really bad place right now. Uh, you guys have to find a way to cheer him up or he can't give you the next plot hook. Um, that's so funny. Incompetent NPCs. Um, <laughs> God, that's so good. Whoo, I love that. Um, uh, so, and that's an awesome thing too of like, um, uh, cause I think that's something we, we get a lot from, from DMs asking questions about the show as well is about like time management as a dungeon master is about that idea of like, how much do you lean on preparation versus how much are you like managing the pacing of the adventure and the quest and stuff like that? What is your relationship like with the clock while you're DMing? Like, what are you kind of doing to make life easier on yourself to make sessions that are like, you know, this is like a weird thing I haven't really talked about on the podcast before, but like there is such a thing as like an enjoyable length of time for an adventure to go. Do you find yourself speeding things up or lengthening things out? And if so, what what's the kind of rubric you use to make those kind of time decisions as a dungeon master? Yeah, I think I think time, my relationship with the clock is is one that is adversarial. <laughs> <laughs> I hear <laughs> that. Hell yes. And I mean, I'm I'm sure you understand also as, as someone who DMs for camera, thinking like, okay, we should be able to get through this story in in eight episodes, and it's going to be about twenty four hours of content. It should be fine. And then being four episodes in and being like, I I don't know how we're gonna wrap up this. They're not even a third of the way through the campaign, <laughs> or or you know like it's that. I feel like I always overestimate where I'm like I'm sure that the players can do all of this in three hours. I'm like nope, they're still in town. They're they're still in town. There's I, so next episode I'm gonna have to figure out how to you know skip through this. I think so. Like my, my biggest tool is make things modular. I think everybody kind of has that though. Make things they make things modular. Um, have tools for your players to be able to skip things if they need to. Um, and by that I mean like if normally they would have to search for information, give them someone useful they can ask. Yeah. And having having that central hub character, that person that can like give them information or put them on the right track when they get lost. And because players sometimes need that person. They're just like, well, what next? We we've gotten the stone from the necromancer's tomb, and and I don't know. Maybe I think maybe we should solve this murder, and it's like having someone for them to refer back to, I and just kind of like point them in the right direction. I fall into that trap a lot because there is part of me that sometimes loves the idea of the PCs being totally without help because it's like you're at your darkest moment. How will you rise from the? But truthfully, having a not only sometimes one, but like a variety of NPCs with different skill sets that the party can lean on is often, I think, one of the biggest. And look, I'll, I'll, I'll like give a peek behind the curtain. Having a smart NPC that knows a lot of stuff helping your party is a really great way to help them get back on the right track in a campaign, having your little DM NPC. There's something about, I think some people think of it as like a dirty trick of like, like, well, the wizard turns and says, actually, I think if you turn the puzzle this way, you, you'll see, you know, like, but the truth is it's not really a dirty trick because the, the, the downside of not having that helper NPC around is watching your PCs either really struggle 
with some element of something that at the end of the day you made up and then and the other thing too can be like watching your pcs go down the wrong track either like generating a like conspiracy theory about that happens a lot (laughs) right they're like it's got to be this and it's sometimes nice to have the wise priestess be like um well you know we're making a lot of inferences based on the incomplete information maybe some of this guys i think we're getting ahead of ourselves (laughs) like uh that's a helpful character to have around not because and again is that railroading? <sighs> Maybe, but it's a type of railroading that I think your players actually appreciate because nobody wants to be the people that spent like 90 minutes coming up with a theory only to get to the town and have the townsfolk be like, nope, there's nothing like that going on. Yeah. You were wrong. Yeah. Um, so I think I think the best thing to do is I you have two choices. Have a helpful NPC around or be ready to make your players right from time to time where they're yeah. like, we think this is going on. And you have your DM notebook open and you're like, this is gold. <laughs> like, um, this is all just work it into bad. the campaign. Yeah. 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 I've, I've definitely done that before. I think like the other reason I probably lean on those magical NPCs so much is I always try to tie it to, to players backstories. Cause I feel like they very rarely come into play. So, you know, if your player's like, oh, yeah, I have a twin brother and our relationship is kind of like we're always in contest with each other. And then you have them in a situation where it could be a TPK or something like that. And when you start talking about DMing on camera, that's very complicated because that, that could be a bad thing. Or, or maybe, you know, you're really early in the campaign. You don't want your party to TPK. There could be a lot of various reasons there. I'm not completely against, you know, killing your players. I just think there's a time and place where it's like expected and appropriate versus like you just started. You just rolled these characters. Maybe not now. I might have that twin brother pop up and save them. And now they owe him a favor. And he's also never going to let him live it down <laughs> for the next three weeks. A hundred percent. I think too, that there's a way like, t- yes, I fully agree with that. Having people come in and save your PCs in that situation is great. And I think there are creative ways to avoid a TPK and still have your players experience the loss. Like full-scale whole party dead, Mm -hmm. uh, unless unless you've structured your world in a very interesting way, in in a lot of worlds and a lot of stories, that is not going to be satisfying. Like we had Kelly Lynn D'Angelo on and she had an amazing thing about having run a TPK and then just continued the adventure from the afterlife, which she's a brilliant improviser and that's such a cool way to handle that. But in a lot of, in a lot of stories, I think you're going to find there are other ways to handle it. And especially like, okay, players are on the verge of a TPK. NPC comes in to save them. NPC is now owed a tremendous favor. Is, is that NPC yeah. an arch fay member of the court of whatever? And it's like, yeah. I can save you if you all sell me your soul. Great. Now adventure continues, yep. but there's a tremendous feeling of, boy, did it cost us dearly to get our ass handed to us there. Like, yes, those bad dice rolls mattered. Yes, that TPK in quotation marks mattered, but we resolved in a way that kept the story going, right? Um, You can always break stuff too. That always breaks my players' hearts. Like, oh, this, this, you know, plus one sword you got, it broke in the battle, it got crunched to pieces. I think in a vampire game, that was probably, it would have been a TPK. I did warn my players not to fight an elder several times. It didn't work. And 
ultimately what it became was like I, I structured a really good like boss like uh, monologue. Yeah. And by the time he was done and and left, they survived. I didn't I didn't kill them, but they were just humiliated. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I almost felt bad and they were like, he's right. We're nothing. We're fledglings. We're we're just baby vampires. And we, we really came in here and thought we were gonna kill him. And he he stomped us into the ground and said we weren't worth his boots and he left. <laughs> And they were just like, oh, my God, that's so humiliating. I don't know what to do. And it became this, like, revenge story of, like, trying to train and get better so they could eventually, you know, redeem themselves. I love it. I love it so much. Um, And I think that there is, like, again, there are sad – there are ways of handling failure that are really satisfying. Um, We had a – we there was I had a long running home game where we had a total party defeat, which I recommend over a total party kill. Yeah, it was Dark Knight of the Soul. They went up against multiple powerful wizards at the same time. A member of the party broke part of this sort of like wizardly compact of hospitality, and they just weren't ready. They had bad order in the initiative. Blam defeated in a big way only one party member escapes and it's one of the only party members without any magic the party's archer escapes into the woods and realizes that all of her allies are captured and scattered to the winds and all this stuff and we ended with them as low as it ever been but realizing she got this secret piece of information at the end of that thing where uh she realized that one of her allies that they thought was dead was actually still alive and so there was this moment of her comp- like bloody and defeated, alone in the jungle, no friends or allies. She's the only one that knows that her friends have been captured. Everything's resting on her. She has no way to teleport, no way to fly out of here, hundreds of miles of wilderness in all directions, but has this one secret where it's like, you know that your friend is out there somewhere and can help you get them all back. Ah, that's amazing. And, it, and so it's that moment of like, of like okay, yes, we are completely fucked, but we have hope. <laughs> it's like that. Gotta give them that sliver. <laughs> gotta give them that sliver, people. And, and it completely changed the tenor of that moment. Because what you don't want to do as a DM is be like, um, you guys fucked up by your dice rolling badly and me making a monster that was too hard. Yeah. The didn't fuck up. Like, yeah. You don't you don't want to do that. What you want to say is like, look at how the story and the structures of realism within our world led to this kind of unavoidable mm-hmm. defeat, but how it is already spinning the next chapter of the story. Yeah. Um, if the heirloom sword that he got from his father gets broken instead of him losing his life, now we get to we get to have this Aragorn-esque moment of reforging that sword. Now you have to Ooh. seek out the dwarf that the, the, from the village that made that sword in the first place, and you have to rebuild it. Yes. You have to prove to him. You have to uh, bring him out of retirement because he doesn't build swords anymore because they're made for war. <laughs> oh, we love a sword that was broken and now reforged by a reluctant magical smith. We love it. The tropes, baby. Um Oh, incredible. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into uh, uh, some questions uh, uh, from our from our fans, from our Discord. Thanks, Discord fans. Um, 
This first one comes to us from Callum. Thank you, Callum. Um, Callum says, I think I've basically got the hang of making fun, dynamic encounters, but I struggle tying them together into a plot. Do you have any tips for turning a series of scenes into a story with things like foreshadowing and character development without railroading the PCs? Uh, great question, Callum. Thank you for that. Yeah. How the hell do you turn a bunch of cool scenes and encounters into a GD story? Yeah, it's that's a that's a that's a good question. Yeah. Um, I think part of me starts by asking, I guess, like starting to answer the questions that I think players are going to ask. You know, if there's like this crazy spider in the woods, where did the spider come from? Well, maybe she was a princess that was cursed. Why was she cursed? Well, maybe her king uh, was really rude to a hag in the woods and the hag had magical powers. Well, why was he rude to the hag? And now I've already developed three boss battles or <laughs> you know, three encounters. So it's it's like as, asking the questions that like your players will ask because when you're looking at a, at, a, at a DM's guide or at a monster manual, you just have creatures. But trying to explain why they're there, why they're a threat, why they're doing what they're doing, what are they doing, that could be something that, you know, turns into an overarching greater story. And that's how you turn a really awesome encounter into a really awesome movie, so to speak. And your players will help you with that because sometimes my players come up with better plots than I do because they'll be sitting there like, well, maybe the reason that these people stole the silver is because they're 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 vampires and they're going to attack this town. They my players literally created a plot about, you know, basically waylaying some bandits. They found a bunch of silver in the in the cart and thought, well, clearly they're stealing the silver on behalf of a vampire lord because silver and vampires are werewolves. It's got to be something like that. And I was like, well, I know what the overarching plot of the story is going to be now. <laughs> you can <laughs> you can take your cues from players, too. I love that. I think taking your cues from players is the answer here. And there's kind of no way to get around it. It's it's the nature of the game. Like, imagine trying to write a novel where your six main characters wrote themselves on the page. Like, there's nothing you... You, ha you have to see what they're going to do yeah. um, before you can ad adopt it into a story. I, and I also want to talk about here that, like, I wouldn't put the pressure on yourself to do this. Humans find stories even where there aren't any. Like, you know, th there's a great piece about human psychology, which is, the, you know, the phenomenon of, like, people, not phenomenon, but, like, the, the pastime of people lying on their back on the grass, looking up at the clouds and, and pointing out the shapes in the clouds. That activity doesn't say anything about clouds and everything about the human mind. Those clouds aren't making those shapes. It's our incredible ability to find significance, meaning, and pattern in things. I think this is getting maybe too deep, but there's there is way more often your mind is creating significance rather than discovering it, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's a big part of what different human like knowledge disciplines try to offer is honestly lots of ways of avoiding tricking yourself with excess meaning where there really isn't any. All of which is to say that um, you're, if you 
try to make fun and cool encounters for your players and you do them in chronological order, you'll probably end up with a story. <laughs> like you will pro there will probably be a story there as long as you're listening, as long as you're paying attention and you're like, whoa, like these characters really don't like this one enemy that I've made. I'm gonna have the enemy escape and come back later. And they're gonna start to develop like a relationship over there and, oh my God, I made a villain. Like yep. that's how that happens. Like these structures occur organically mm -hmm. through the natural processes of emotion and feeling through your characters going through these encounters, right? Now, if you want to like imbue your worlds with theme and meaning, like knock yourself out, go for it. Like you're allowed to have fun too. You're the dungeon master. Yeah. That's kind of how I think of these worlds a lot. When I'm thinking of like themes for a setting or stuff like that, a lot of the times there's, there is an acknowledgement on my part of like, well, this is what I'm bringing to the potluck, but it's not the whole dinner. Like yeah. players are gonna be finding their own meaning and developing their own narratives within this. If I wanted to make something that had a uniform authorial vision, I'd be writing a book, right? Yes. Um, so I think that's an important element uh, to that to that going on there. Um, I'm trying to go back to the question here and think if there's anything, like if you're making these fun dynamic encounters, struggle to tie them together into a plot, um, uh, in terms of things like foreshadowing and character development, I think that that stuff can happen organically as you are brainstorming your different sessions, because a lot of that is gonna be based off of player attention. Mm -hmm. Back when I was doing improv shows, one of the things I would talk about with um, students and teams I coach was like, it's very rare for a creator to get the kind of instant feedback you get in improv. When the audience laughs at something, you know what it is that they liked and you can do it again. You can keep yeah. mining that success. Similarly, if your players begin to, if your player characters begin to find meaning in things, develop adversarial relationships, develop strong alliances, and also begin to struggle internally with things, that's your, that's your bread and butter. That's the thing that you should be seizing on. Um, so I would say that a lot of the storytelling of DM of, of a DM is less so this like ex cathedra authoritarian kind of like here's the story and you're just playing in it, but rather mutual collaboration with your PCs of seeing what sparks joy in them mm -hmm. and just doing more of that. Yeah, and you can almost never tell when your players are going to love something or hate it until it happens you might design an npc and think this person's really cool i'm sure my players will love him and instead they're like i look around his house there's definitely something up with this guy nobody's that nice he's definitely up to something you know <laughs> i have this happen a lot with my so players where they're just like, it's so real there's definitely something up with this guy I search around his house while he makes this hot chocolate with marshmallows because there has to be no one's this nice he's definitely hiding bodies in the basement and you can use that and turn it into like, well, well, he wasn't, but now maybe he is because <laughs> that's what the players want to see. And there's nothing like a good payoff. It, you can only have so many dead ends before, yeah. you know, I think we all like I think you're right that we do look for meaning as players in places where it, sometimes it isn't. And I remember it got to the point where one of my DMs said to us, like, there's a crow sitting on the banister. It is set dressing because we. <laughs> We had tried to find meaning in it so to where he would, as soon as he mentioned crow and he saw our faces, he was like, it, the crow is set dressing. Yeah. And we were just yeah. like, oh. Okay. Jasmine, 
There's an entire <laughs> battle in our first season of Dimension 20 where our incredible set designer, uh, a production designer, Rick Perry, just put a, there was a, a, a battle set that just had a little vulture on one of these like rusty water pylon tower thingies. Just this like vulture sitting there. Mm -hmm. um, and every single player's first turn was dedicated to perception and insight checks on the vulture <laughs> to see if there were active enemies trying to kill... You know, you know the struggle. You know how real it is. That, I mean, to the point where literally at like the fourth or fifth player, I was like, the vulture flies away. The vulture is gone. It's gone. The vulture isn't there. The vulture is nothing. Stop talking about the vulture. <laughs> the vulture um, is set dressing. The vulture is set. I wish I had said it at the beginning. The vulture is set dressing. Um, but it, it, here's the thing. It is hard because to, to take some ownership of that, as a dungeon master, one of the issues is um, that emphasis is a clue, right? As dungeon masters, we do that all the time where people walk into a room and you're like, hey, there's a room, there's mold on the walls, dungeon, there's chains and shackles. And a strange emblem on a signet ring in the corner. Like, you know, you have that moment where it's like, oh, the ring is the thing in this room. And but what about that mold? Is that mold poisonous? Can I breathe that in? Is that... Is it a mind control mold? I well, can't be sure. I have chef tools proficiency. Can I cook the mold? <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, too real. Um, but there is that element. I think that's very, very true. And looking at the, the, the that structure there, it's really interesting as a DM to, one of the things I think that is a good piece of advice for DMs that are first starting out or beginning is to take care with your emphasis. One of the things that I still get in trouble with is I like rich textured worlds, but it's sometimes hard to add texture in a way that doesn't seem like a plot hook. I remember one time we had a character, we had an NPC who had a character who was his mom. We have an NPC in one of our settings named Rod Barkrock, whose mom, Lydia Barkrock, just is a cool adventurer who, like in her backstory embedded this demon shard gem in her chest to, and is in a perpetual state of barbarian rage just to like contain the demon within the gem that's in her chest. Mm -hmm. um, and I said that as backstory because it's just a piece of backstory. I came up that I kind of liked and immediately the PCs do what PCs do, which is go, that's gotta have something to do with our current. And it did, it, it was similar because they were dealing with like magical gems. It seemed like a connection was there. And I kind of had that oh! moment of like, you made something a little bit too cool that didn't connect to the story. And now it seems like a useful lead. Um, how do you, when you come up with something like that, have you ever like thrown up a thing that you just thought was cool world building that like snags the player's interest? And what do you do in those moments mm -hmm. with your players maybe chasing like a red herring? I either try to figure out a way to tie it into the story or I try to do like a spinoff. So my <laughs> players actually have done that with a, they saved a small goblin child from a, from a weradile. We'll get into what that is at a future point. <laughs> but they really liked her. I, I think maybe I, I role played her a little too well. And, and she had a really snotty nose and all of this because she just does. And, and they just loved her. And they decided like, okay, no, we can't. Like we're going to give we're, one of our players is like, I'm going to give up a warlock level and make her a level one warlock. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. He sacrificed the full level to make her a warlock. 
And I and it and I was like, okay, so she's not. They kept at first they kept trying to tie her to the main story because they were trying to figure out. And I was like, she was just a, <laughs> she was just kid. a kid you saved, you know. But now that she's a warlock, she's been kind of leveling up in the background, and it has become a parallel story. Like every time they come back to town and they're like, where's Daisy? They see that Daisy now has Mage Hand, and Daisy is, <laughs> you know, her Eldritch Blast now pushes people ten feet back, and she's getting a little bit more powerful. But now she's also starting to hit puberty. So there's like, you know, she almost killed her neighbor's cat and she's she's done some bad things too. And it's become this like parallel story to the main one. So sometimes I'll do something like that so that they get to explore that cool thing. Because there is clearly something about that character they really liked. And I don't want to, I don't want to shut that down and be like, she's not important, stop, you know? So I try yeah. to give them something so they can feel like, well, we like this and we want to keep exploring this. So we can do that and also still have our main story. I love that. I think that's a, that's a very <laughs> elegant solution to that issue. And because you do want to, again, adopt what they are saying is like their sphere of interest within the story. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see here. Um, let me see. Okay. Uh, more questions, more questions. Um, Oh, this one comes to us from Chair. Thanks, Chair. Um, in times like these, when it can be hard to find places of joy, do you have any advice on how to find little joys, either in everyday life or in D&D? Um, any advice for new players on how to spark some extra dopamine or simply to feel more relaxed about games? Um, Games can definitely take on a little bit of stress, especially in, in these pandemic times we are in. Um, but even in the before times, like there's a little bit of stress around like getting schedules to match. And is some like, oh, someone's going to be like an hour late because a job thing came up and stuff like that. Um, this is a very, as someone who's played a lot in terms of finding that extra dopamine, I think it's very important to set intentions and find gratitude. So every time you're sitting down at the table, remember to like like check in with each other in order to pump each other up, to get excited, to remember that you're here to tell a story together, to remember that you love these people and you care about them and you specifically, you're, you could have all like stayed home and played a different game together. You could have played a video game. You could have stayed home and played solitaire. You could have watched a movie. You came here to do this particular kind of game whose only selling point versus other pastimes is that you can create unique choices and honor them in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. So, setting your intention of being like, hey, we all purposely came here. Let's not treat this like being rote, even if it's a set or scheduled weekly, bi-weekly, monthly game. Let's remember that we are here at, at a new session. Let's set the intention to have a good time, right? Um, I'm wondering how much my, my like hippie upbringing is showing right now. Set the intention. Um, but uh, uh, so set the intention and I think find gratitude, right? Like, um, Battle doesn't go your way. You have a bad dice night. You, um, your character fails to get revenge on the like the, the villain escapes once again, um, or or even just like sometimes that out of character stuff. Like, you know, if you 
like by virtue of the fact that every campaign I've ever played in has some like incredibly memorable sessions, by definition, if you have amazing sessions, you're gonna have other sessions that are maybe not amazing. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means like sometimes you go and play your session and you're like, this was one of the this was one of the good ones. It wasn't one of the great ones. This was one of the ones that was just fun. Maybe sometimes you have a session where you're like, ah, no one was really feeling it. Or like, ah, something came up that was like a bummer. Um and and assuming that it wasn't like purposeful malice on someone's part, which is like a different discussion, um, when that happens, I think that you can still find gratitude even for just the action of having come together to enjoy each other, even if something prevented that from happening, still finding the gratitude for that space. Um, you know, if I play in a session that is like, you know, maybe not my favorite session of the campaign that I'm in, or I'm running a session and I go, oh, brother, Brad, that's not one of your best. That's not one of your best, right? Um, still finding gratitude because at the end of the day, I got to spend time doing a thing I love with people I love. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, regardless of the outcome, that journey is so worth it. Yeah. Uh, uh, that yeah. would be that would be my advice for finding the finding. Would you say finding the dopamine, the serotonin? Yeah. Get it for, for for finding that good brain juice that we so so crave. Um, uh, yeah. How about you, Jasmine? Uh, is that, mm -hmm. for you? How do you do you like? Uh, uh, as someone who plays this a lot, and now also has that that added pressure, like myself, of like playing this uh, professionally, um, mm -hmm. how do you keep how do you keep the joy uh, uh, flowing? Um, how do you like uh, make sure to protect that little kind of sacred space of like? Yeah, mm -hmm. I think some of it is. I think one of the big things for me, and I, I can't speak universally with the pandemic and everything that's happening, is that we've we we have to miss out on some of our rituals even if yeah. that's like going to ren fair every year that's something i always do with my friends or maybe we always go see all the marvel films together in in movie theaters that's the part of this that's that's hitting me a lot i think especially like now that we're getting into the holiday season so to me it's about creating new rituals um at the table at home like in my daily life maybe normally uh, we would all get together on Halloween and, and have a big Halloween party. We can't do that this year. So it's like, how do I try to inject some of that magic into tonight's campaign? Maybe maybe the campaign is normally, you know, very high fantasy, but tonight we're going to get a little whimsical with it. Maybe the Headless Horseman has come back to life for this night only, one night only, one special event. And trying to have, like, trying to create these new rituals so that we can we can engage in these in these like you know things that we all care so much about communally um, that we're missing out on. You know, um, I love giving out candy. <laughs> I love no. Out, I love seeing kids in costume, and I, I like so for me personally, like Halloween hasn't really felt like Halloween, but it's like okay, let's 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 light some candles, let's carve a pumpkin, let's maybe let's figure out what Halloween looks like now, so we can still feel like it's Halloween. <laughs> oh my God, I. I love that so much. I think that's so important. And I think, yeah, living, this is, you know, it, it's so bizarre to have like lived through many months of quarantine and doing things remotely. And then to everyone's gonna look up and be like, oh, this is the strangest thing. Like, th like we are living through 
Like the human adaptability is sometimes a curse because you, sometimes you'll go through the strangest stuff and adapt too quickly and not give space to how much has changed and not make efforts like you're saying mm -hmm. to honor those things like rituals. I'm a big, I like any kind of ceremony. I like any kind of ritual. I love, you know, decorating for Christmas. I love mm -hmm. candy on Halloween. I love all these ways of marking the seasons. And um, I think that uh, in your, again, in your personal life, that's a great thing to do uh, to to stay active and stay in touch with that feeling of joy. Uh, and as you're with your games as well, like uh, marking those special things, like uh, uh, making time to put work and effort into honoring the fact that everything is so topsy-turvy. Um, I love that. Um, uh, let's jump into another one here. Um, uh, oh, this is interesting. This one comes to us from Scientific Sea Slug. Thanks, Scientific Sea Slug. Um, which do you think works better for a TTRPG setting? Fantasy versus sci-fi. Or if you can't choose, are there elements from one that you like to blend into the other? Whoa, Scientific Sea Slug, thanks for the question. Um, well, certainly I've logged like a zillion more fantasy hours across the board in terms of what I consume media-wise and also the games that I've run. Um, so I would be hard pressed not to just, not even as a matter of preference, but just as a matter of like lived fact, I'd probably have to go fantasy is my my comfort area. Um, uh, how about yourself, Jasmine? Have you have you played, um, uh, have, like how much have you played in both or yeah. either or whatever? Um, Quite a bit. Uh... <laughs> I, I, I've done a lot of fantasy, but I love, I have such a soft spot for science fiction. It's mm -hmm. a big one. I'm a big fan of Isaac Asimov, really love, uh, you know, the alien franchise and stuff like that. So for me, I love science fiction. Um, I think it's easier to, t to set, I guess, like uh, tension in a science fiction game. It's really easy to like have that setup of like stakes, like we were talking about earlier. It's just like the, you're in the void of space half the time, like everything out here wants to kill you. And it's like really nice to, to and you can recreate that in fantasy, but I like like that sort of cold, empty hollowness of space. Ooh, <laughs> I dig that, hell yeah. Um, I also like underwater campaigns for that same reason though, like the idea that, you know, like, like very Lovecraft, like bottom of the ocean type of stuff. I like that too. Um, I, yeah, that's the thing too, is that there's so many places where these commingle and intersect in interesting ways. Like if you're looking at Star Wars, that is much more the shape of a fantasy story than it is of a science fiction story, yeah. lasers notwithstanding. Um, you know, literally the people are like fighting with swords in it. You know, like it's, there's a very interesting element here to, to this question of, um, a lot of tabletop games, obviously D&D as kind of the progenitor, but like truly like, you know, most tabletop games center around like a group of people that are like plucky heroes going and solving a problem together. I think there are like elements of fantasy that complement that very well. Um, which isn't to say that there aren't a lot of great science fiction stories about a plucky group of heroes. My God, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, you know, Firefly, et cetera. Like, Clearly, space opera is great for that. But what's interesting is um, my mom is a huge science fiction head. She's a comic book writer, loves sci-fi. 
And she's very into the hardcore, like, you know, Asimov, Heinlein, uh, Jesus, Philip K. Dick, you know, like the, like the, the, uh, and within those, those are not necessarily stories of heroism, right? Like a lot of the big, and and the progenitor of sci-fi being Frankenstein, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mary Shelley, like, um, you see that that is that is a story about like the dangers. There's there's I think sci-fi goes hand in hand with horror a lot, and so there's an element of I don't know. I'm kind of just rambling. I've lost it. Um, <laughs> no, but there's I think what I'm trying to get at is um, there. I am such a like I am so like deep in my like rut from Dungeons and Dragons of like knowing how to like swing together a band of heroes and set them off on a magic adventure da, 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 that the beats of fantasy are very similar and with sci-fi there's always a struggle I think of like okay yes there are spaceships and lasers and stuff but is this still taking the shape of a fantasy story the challenge of telling a really classical sci-fi story which often has to do with elements of horror or elements of like I'm afraid there was some science fiction author that had that thing about like true science fiction not that we, not that we need to be gatekeepery about it but it's an interesting concept of like true science fiction is taking an element of scientific inquiry and sort of transposing it onto a prediction about the future of like you know like look at like terminator it's like okay a military ai is going to take over the planet look at the matrix like yeah blade runner blade (laughs) runner right so it's interesting because i think the thing that i meditate on with sci-fi is can you tell an engaging tabletop story that doesn't necessarily feature heroism in the same way that very mythological fantasy yeah. is very kind of tailor built to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, but of course, there's I, I'm immediate in my head. Uh, the answer to that is immediately, yeah. You can think of a million like there's so many awesome sci-fi stories that are very heroic. Star mm-hmm. Wars, Star Trek, mm-hmm. you know the things I've already mentioned, uh, and there are even actual plays to it. Like Into the Motherlands is like an incredible science fiction story. Uh, Tanya DePass, B. Dave Walters, a whole crew. Uh, I'm writing the adventure for that. The streamed adventure is my handiwork. <laughs> are you for real? Yeah. Oh my God, it's fucking incredible. The first yeah. couple sessions have come out. It's amazing. I yeah, Eugenio is uh, the GM, but I've I wrote the adventure, and you'll be able to get your hands on it to run it for yourself. Why as well. the fuck am I flapping my dumb mouth about it? <laughs> we have a goddamn expert on the show. <laughs> I've never been. I'm red as a tomato. How deeply I what a fool I have been. What do you what do you feel is the mm-hmm. so it, is there anything to what I'm talking about that it registers with you at all as being like yeah. a different so like what to you makes sci-fi storytelling different from fantasy storytelling To me what makes it different is the the goalposts for what is possible go wide Yeah You know, I feel like with fantasy, we have like this idea of like, this is the size of the world and it can never really get much bigger than that. You know, once, once you see, you've seen the whole map, you know, you kind of know that this is kind of where it begins and ends unless you start getting into wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff. But with, with science fiction, 
the the sense of the unknown your your players are automatically tuned in to when they see something they're not looking through their monster manual they're like there's a very good possibility we have no idea what this is there's a very good possibility this is an entirely alien creature there's a very good possibility we're going to end up in a in a part of space that's completely uncharted it's that that scale gets turned up to a degree that no one i think is really prepared for i Love that. The, how do you handle that overwhelming feeling of possibility? Because what I love, what I love about what you're saying too, is magic, which is sort of the defining feature of fantasy and kind of anathema to science fiction. Like, yeah, there are like space wizards and stuff, but for the most part, the whole fun of science fiction is to have thought and logic behind the phenomena of whatever world we are in. That there is something that we do know how the hyperdrive works. Mm -hmm. Like within that, realizing that what magic does a lot of time is provide these quick and easy explanations that are kind of rooted in primal and intuitive senses of the self yeah. and of story. With science fiction, which is so much more, I feel like, cerebral in a lot of ways, um, how do you handle that immense cosmic sense of possibility yeah. as a storyteller when in fact we kind of know that stories are sometimes helped by their limitations? Mm -hmm. um, uh, like obviously no spoilers for where like into the motherlands is headed, but like <laughs> there is that feeling of of like um, what guides your sense of like theme or plot or mm -hmm. like direction in a sci-fi world that feels different to when you're developing stuff for a fantasy setting. Yeah, um, I think I think uh, it's it's knowing that at any point like you can move the I guess move the camera angle a little bit mm -hmm. whereas like with with I guess with fantasy I always write the campaign with the adventurers in mind but with sci-fi I always write the campaign with the politics in mind like thinking of like the factions at play I don't know if that's the Warhammer fan in me I, I like oh, a lot oh. of Warhammer 40k so I think like for me my brain always thinks in that idea of like you are just a you are very small and the world is this big so I'm going to look at this part of the world and see how what you do influences like the the sort of ecosystem here. And I think it's about thinking of things in terms of not players and, and NPCs, but thinking of it in terms of an ecosystem, thinking of it in terms of like having in your head an idea of like what one ripple can do in this immediate pond and knowing that in the in the in the larger ocean, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. But how does that how is that going to inform this region of space? If that makes sense. I don't know if that's a good answer. <laughs> no, I think that is a great answer. And it gets to something too that has always a little bit intimidated me about science fiction as a setting, which is that idea of, how do I put it? Fantasy is filled with, frankly, shortcuts to the dramatic questions of why these people, why these powers, why this, why that. Like you look at your average D and D party and someone is the like the the chosen cleric of a forgotten god and the other person is dragon touched and it's filled with chosen ones and heirs to a long lost thing and people uh -huh. whose fey grandmother gave them the sword that's the only sword that can defeat the dragon king like magic solves a lot of problems in terms of, like why are we following this kid um born with the birthmark of the ninth tree of the upper realms 
There you go. That's why. And you go like, like, oh, okay, cool. There's that little magical explanation. Mm -hmm. Obviously, sci-fi has a lot of that as well. The Skywalkers, right? Mm -hmm. Sci-fi has a lot of that as well. But there's always something within sci-fi where the world feels so much bigger than the characters in sci-fi mm -hmm. than it does in fantasy. A lot of the time. Like, you look at you know decker from blade runner yes. that's not he's not he's not the hero of blade runner land <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah. there's no like there's a lot of despair and there's a lot of elements of feeling your smallness in the vastness of space mm -hmm. um uh which isn't a knock against it it's just something that is very interesting to think about in yeah. terms of the beats of storytelling within actual play i feel like there's a lot more opportunities in sci-fi for our heroes to not succeed from time to time yeah. i don't yeah. like i don't know if you feel the same way but it does this you know there's a lot of uh, the stakes are very different in sci-fi oh I'm so glad this question got asked. This is so cool. I'm so I can't believe that you write the that's so When are we awesome. gonna get you to GM a, a sci-fi game? <laughs> I here's the thing, people yell at me to do it all the time, and they're I'm I'm scared. <laughs> it's the only thing I'm just scared. Well, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm just scared. That's all. Um uh uh but I think that there there uh, you know um there are a lot of well, and I think too. One of the things about sci-fi that's very interesting is the the lore of fantasy has this kind of mythic haze around it that sci-fi doesn't have that makes improvisation a lot easier. And as a DM, I lean on improvisation a lot. Like I can come up with a village of little magical gnomes like that. But with science fiction, I feel like. Um, there's less humidity in the air, which means that everything gets rendered a lot more clearly. So if I'm making up a village in a science fiction setting, things like, why is this village here? Is this a mining encampment? Like, why did they do what they do here? What's the element? Like, okay, is this Imperial? What's the kind of thing here? What resources do they have? Can we repair a Starship engine here? There are, I think that science fiction, not all the time, but overwhelmingly, busies itself with logistics way more than fantasy does sci-fi you know what i mean like yeah i always I, I and i've heard this a lot where people will be like oh but that's not how x y or z works and i'm like yeah but there's a fiction and science fiction so it's fine <laughs> and and you can have shortcuts like that in science fiction and yes. your players will appreciate it if it's like well you know what what is this crystal do we know what this does what kind of fuel are they mining here and you can make up like, well, it's highly volatile. Crates of it explode when struck with, you know, any type of, of pressure, any change in pressure or temperature. And these crates are, are liable to explode. Um, you know, and this town is sitting on a on a bunch of it and now they're having earthquakes. So we need you to move these crates out of this gnome village, or out of this gnome mining colony <laughs> off planet and do it before your ship explodes and figure out how you're going to dispose of that. And if people get really caught up in the logistics of like, okay, but what is in the crate? You just... Chemical X. Yes. Chemical X is in the proprietary crate. formula. You have no idea what's in it. <laughs> that's the thing is, is like improvising my way. But I think that's what it is, right? Is you have to have some slack. And again, improvising your way, like fantasy, we open the boxes in the King's dungeons. What's in there? Handcrafted elven swords cut to the sci-fi world. We bust the crate up and what's in there. 
Um, laser guns, really? What make and model? Like, you just have that moment of like, ooh, I need to, there's a certain, but I'm also, I'm, I'm overly afraid because there's also an element to like, um, oh, what was I going to say? Uh, of like, I'm being overly prescriptive because when I'm talking about sci-fi, I'm talking about this very narrow subset of sci-fi. Like mm -hmm. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is sci-fi. And that's got like that, you know, like I could, I feel like I could GM in like a Hitchhiker's Guide yeah. world super easily. Cause it's like Looney Tunes, right? It's like, yes. well, there's an, it's like, we're not really sweating the details here. It's like mm -hmm. use the probability engine to turn a, you know, flower pot into a whale. I'm like paraphrasing the scene now. But there's the element of like, um, of the there is a certain type of sci-fi which is very diligent about logistics. Mm -hmm. That particular subset is very intimidating to me. And That's I think, fair. and I yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's you could just run it like Bill and Ted's Awesome Adventure. You know, that if you think about it, that's technically like a D and D campaign except in space. It kind of is. It feels like a DD campaign that starts with three people and then more and more people that are in the friend group <laughs> start hearing machine. about it. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I'm going to join. I'll be Socrates. It'll be rad. <laughs> uh, I love that so much. Well, I feel I appreciate your, your advice and perspective because I feel like I'm like more into it now. I'm like, yeah. Like, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, um, I was like, oh, darn, I shouldn't be afraid. It's all, it's all going to be all right. Um, uh, Okay, uh, let's see here. More questions, more questions. Um, uh, oh, this this comes to us from Corvax. Thanks, Corvax. What are your favorite character failures, i.e. something awesome that happened because the character failed at something? Um, oh, man. Um, I just thought of one from the season we most recently shot that isn't out yet, and I can't say that one. Um, uh, yeah. Oh God, there are so many great character failures. Um, uh, I mean, we do a comedy stream, so like the comedic moments that come from our thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Zach Oyama's Gorgug was playing a half-orc barbarian teenager who uh, didn't know who his birth father, biological father, was. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, on a Nat One Insight, was talking to his coach, and I was like, Nat One Insight there's a possibility the coach is your dad and started a whole running bit of him thinking everyone he met was his dad. And oh every time gosh. he, every time he rolled a bad insight check, uh, Fabian Seacaster eating a piece of glass on a Nat one investigation check and cutting his mouth open real bad. Um, and being yelled at to go get a pretzel really brings a lot of joy to me. I think that there's great comedy. Like, one of the awesome things about playing with comedians versus when I've played with other groups of people before is I have never had to explain to the, the improvisers and comedians I've played with what to do with failure. Mm -hmm. Because for some people, like when, I, when I've introduced like family members to it or other people, processing a failure can be really hard. But comedians are like, I face plant? Hell yeah, I know what to do with this. Like they're, they, they already have trained their pride reflex they don't have a pride reflex right there is no yeah. embarrassment muscle that is like contracting in that moment they're like yeah i i blew it like this is great um which is helpful from doing a lot of comedy um mm -hmm. i'm trying to think of other moments of failure what is what are some moments that yeah you experienced at, at the <sighs> 
Okay. Well, it was me as a player. I was playing a warlock and uh, I had just had like a, like a experience of almost like living a past life or past memory. And in that past memory, my warlock had this really cool, like almost blood colored raven. It was super metal. And I had just learned how to cast find familiar as a ritual. And so I was like, I'm going to try to summon through like, I don't know, genetic memory or something, not like blood colored raven. I don't have a familiar. I cast it. There were some rolls made. I did really poorly. Instead, what popped out instead of this really metal raven was this flying serpent called Marshmallow. And he has a lisp, so he says his name is Marshmallow. And I, that was all the DM. I did not give him a lisp, but he's very like, oh, whoa, you're so wonderful, Aya. And my warlock is always like, oh, why are you? Because <laughs> she's a little bit of an edgelord. And I just am stuck with this pink flying. And it's been in every every episode for the last like six months. And I'm like, yeah, no, this is my, this, this, and it, and right. And every time it's like a recurring bit now. Cause every time I'm like, yes, I'm the warlock of the four realms or whatever. And it's just like, and I'm Marshmallow. And I'm like, does, does he really pop up? Like, and he's just always <laughs> popping up and he's become like an audience favorite. And he's become like this main plot point of like, what's going on with this flying snake. And I'm like, he's, that's my, that's my familiar. Oh my God, that is so funny. Um, the idea of your familiar always popping up at your introduction. God, that's so, so funny. Um, uh, I love that. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a very fun element too. And again, like there is the, the I love a great moment of the dice coming up low when it really like like a stealth check that suddenly alerts the guards to your presence mm -hmm. or or m you know missing that deception roll when you really needed to lie and now <laughs> your enemies know that they're on to you like those things are so great for furthering the plot we need those mm -hmm. moments we need moments of failure like that to increase the stakes to up the tension to mm -hmm. push the narrative forward um, I think those moments of failure are really, really beautiful. Um, so for comedic and narrative reasons, failure is your friend. Um, oh my God, an hour and a half has flown by. I can't even believe it. Uh, Jasmine, what a pleasure and an honor to have this you. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh my God, it was a true, true joy. Um, everyone, please go check out Jasmine, all these incredible streams at Twitch, uh, at That Bronze Girl on Twitch. Go check out all the awesome streaming D&D uh, &D campaigns, D&D &D Beyond Silver and Steel, other awesome stuff. Jasmine, a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Next time, we'll catch you guys then on Adventuring Academy. Woo! -hoo!